Hello and welcome to 6B part 2, maybe. I don't know how much I'm going to cut out the first episode, but chances are there are going to be two of them. So this is the moon fluff bit, the fluffy bits of moon-related stuff that we find a bit more frivolous than the actual hard, interesting moon stuff. Yep, so if you're one of those scientific folks that only tunes in for the moon science bit, you're, you're on the wrong podcast. Yeah, uh, listen to the one before this. Yeah. You've, you've had your bit, now we go on to random nonsense. Because <laughs> the, the previous this podcast was not at all random or nonsense. <laughs> but the reason why I want to keep this as like 6A and 6B as opposed to 6 and 7 is because there might be callbacks to what we talked about earlier. Don't know, haven't recorded it yet, but chances are they will be. Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! So, without further ado, let's start off with some feedback of what happened to Andy's Robot Wars Arena. Yes. <laughs> so last time we heard that you or your dad made a Robot Wars Arena so that you and your brother could play Robot Wars at home. Yes, that is and correct. You said it might still be in the shed. What's happened to it? It is still in the shed <gasps> or the garage even. It is still intact. But it is no longer a Robot Wars arena. Wow, what, what is it? It has been painted over and the pit has been filled in with a lovely ceiling tile that was left over from the kitchen redo. And it has been turned into a battlefield. So that is all fake paint for the airfix Napoleonic War figurines that my dad and my brother love playing with and reenacting battles and throwing fireworks onto occasionally. <laughs> ah, I did wonder because I, I, yeah, in the show notes, I saw this and going, oh, right. Oh, that's brilliant. The, the, the Robot Wars arena is still there. It's a bit garish. <laughs> and, and that pit looks a bit odd. That's not how I'd build a pit. It's... Tell you what, 300 years ago, this would be a modern art masterpiece. Yeah, that was it. It was just like, this This is a bit more modern art. So, yeah, that makes a bit more sense that it's <laughs> it's now a sort of Napoleonic <laughs> battlefield. Because he yeah, asked, like, which robot wars did Andy watch? <laughs> the camo <Was> one. <laughs> was it like some avant-garde robot wars or...? where the robots are actually dead-eyed automatons from the office. It's like, here's Tim in accounting. Boom, 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 boom. And here is Marsha from HR. Boom, 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 man. Let's see the dead-eyed automatons fight it out in the Robot Wars arena of the office life, man. We haven't got Crushinator. We've, we've got, uh, you know, peace. And pe peace is at one with himself. He will just sit there smoking a cigarette for 20 minutes and then Noel Sharkey will question his existence or something. It's not, not marked on like damage style, control and aggression. It's more like melancholy, avant-garde, absence and profoundness of speech or something. <laughs> the house robot would be like nihilistic concepts. Oh, uh, it's Sergeant Essence. He's not pushing the robot into the pit. He's persuading them that the pit doesn't exist and it's safe to step on. It's all in your mind. Yeah. It is not an avant-garde arena. It is a Napoleonic battlefield. But uh, if you look at the top down one here, imagine it all white with red tape around, <laughs> instead of the farmhouse, that was where the pit was. Right. So it had red tape around there and you had the corner patrol zones and we had the Robot Wars house robot toys that were in there. And so they could do extra damage on the Lego robots that went in there. So we all had our own set of rules for this. And this was our arena. That's cool. 
That's really good to see it still going. I want to see a Napoleonic battle versus a robot. <laughs> <laughs> the Battle of Waterloo with Sir Killalot. No, it's surely Sergeant Bash, like an actual military uh, robot. You've got the Coldstream Guards defending Hougemont, and it's just like, right, here comes a robot. <laughs> Sergeant Bash. And what's, were there any sirs then? Sir Killalot? No, yeah, I know Sir Killalot, but were there any sirs in the Battle of Waterloo? You had Duke of Wellington. Uh, Duke of Wellington? That's a Duke. Sir Duke of Wellington? I don't know. I, yeah, there probably were. I don't know. <laughs> I doubt there were robots, which is that. Speaking of this crossover, have you heard of Jimmel Painter? Yes. He has done a mashup because Jonathan Pierce commentates both Robot Wars and football, so he has painted the House Robots versus Chelsea FC. <laughs> right. Is that recently? It's been a few years since I've uh, looked at Jim or Paint It. It is fairly recently. He's still going and he's, uh, he's very, very good. And here is the painting. <laughs> that's great, that. <laughs> yeah, that's what it'd be like. 9-0. Well, yeah, because they've taken out a lot of the players. They've set them on fire, <laughs> yeah. cut off their legs, disemboweled them and scored a goal. Standard Chelsea match. So my Robot Wars Arena does live on just as a different life. It has been reincarnated, if you will, from a modern battlefield to an old one. Lovely. How poetic. So it is now time for the Moon of the Month. Hey, which I'm not allowed to read in the show notes. Well, it's a surprise. I wanted to capture your genuine reaction to what this moon is called. So in previous episodes, we've had the Harvest Moon and the Hunter's Moon. Do you know what the name of the... Full moon is for November. Is it the IT security expert moon? It is not. All oh, right. It is, in fact, the full beaver moon. Okay, yes. That, that's fantastic. <laughs> nothing funny about that, No, mate. there is nothing funny about full beavers. <laughs> Do any of the other animals, whatever the animal, the wolf moon, are they given a sort of fullness state, like the half full Wolf or... Oh no, it's just called a beaver moon, but a lot of the papers would be like, oh, it's the full moon, but it's the full beaver moon. Oh, has this been reported? Sorry, the reason I ask is, like, a newspaper's genuinely saying this is an article, this is news. Every month the Express comes out with, oh, the best place to see the harvest moon, best place to see the full beaver moon. Wow. Imagine being that journalist. <laughs> In fact, that's not even a journalist, you could script that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, just... and better yet, recycle last year's. Yeah. Hey, everyone, it's November. Next article. That, that, I mean, that's broadly what they're saying. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so, sorry, because I, I thought, you know, occasionally you get, like, a, a, a blue moon, which is genuinely rare. Oh, like a super or, black wolf moon, for yeah, example. like, at least, like, stack up six things on it and then do an article. As opposed to, this month, there's a moon. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Which is rubbish. That's <laughs> not an article. Well, did you, did you see the full moon last night? Oh, yeah, I did, actually. No, you didn't! Did I not? You fool! You were tricked! <laughs> was that gone, then? It was 99% full. Okay, right. It was 100% full at 1.30pm today. Oh. During the day. No wonder I felt slightly, sort of, unfulfilled during the day. Uh, I, did, I didn't want to be all like, ha, actually, about it, but I read that as a line in the article and thought, oh, what, you, you, you sad, sad man. <laughs> it's a full moon, okay? Full enough. Yeah. It's full enough. Why do you think it is called a beaver moon? 
Uh, is it because beavers are building dams in November? Are they, do they do something in November? Do they come out in November? Trick-or-treating? <laughs> Not quite trick-or-treating. Trying to, they, they celebrate Guy Fawkes? I'm going to guide you through this. What do a lot of animals do in the winter? Hibernate. Okay, so beavers will start to hibernate now. What could you do with a beaver? <laughs> uh, put it in a bin. <laughs> Set as fire in, to it. Put it in a letterbox, and like you've opened a you've opened a whole can of worms here. I'm going to close that can of worms <laughs> and rephrase the question. As a Native American with no central heating, what are you going to do with a beaver? Oh, can you make a hat or something? You can make clothing out of it. A hat is a cloth piece of. Clothing. You can make more efficient clothing than a beaver. Hat. I'm, I'm just happy with a hat. Okay, well you'd freeze during the winter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your head I've would just be... got a beaver hat. <laughs> What's Uncle Rick doing? Just, just leave him. I'm not naked, I've got a hat. And I've got the tail covering the main bits. <laughs> so, it's called the beaver moon because this is the time that you would set beaver traps before the swamps froze over and the places where the beavers would set the dams froze over and the beavers hibernated. So you could trap the beavers, kill them for the food and use the fur to make clothes to keep you warm during the winter. I know it's cruel to kill beavers, but these are the Native Americans, there's a lot of respect for nature, they use every part of the animal, blah, 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 blah. Well, yes, <laughs> to be fair, there wasn't industrialization and <laughs> yes. an ample supply of clothing, so well, yeah. That's... Thank God we fixed that for them. Well, yes. <laughs> Do you want to know the alternative names for the beaver moon? Oh, right, yeah, is it, um, give up, is it like diamond moon or... They're sensible names. Chicken moon or something. Right, yeah, go on then. They're sensible names. One is known as the frost moon. Yeah, that makes sense. You'll probably get the first frosts in November. Exactly, so frost moon makes sense. Or, I quite like this one, the geese going moon. The geese going? Yeah, because the geese are flying south. Yeah, that's quite a nice one. I like the use of a verb in there as well. You know, not, not the frost coming moon. The, the frost just is a noun. It could be David Frost and they're like really, really keen. On Frost on Sunday. No, Frost. The Frost Report. David Jason is like... Oh, a touch of Frost. Touch of Frost. <laughs> David Frost did not star in A Touch of Frost. That's what I'm confusing as. <laughs> David Jason starred in A Touch of Frost and I've conflated the two. So Del Boy Trotter did not get Richard Nixon to confess to the Watergate scandal. That was David Frost. <laughs> <laughs> I've completed some major events in history in my head. Sorry about that. <laughs> that would be epic, though. If... Right, right, Richard. <laughs> right, got you dead to rights now. Get Boise in there. <laughs> Molly? Put Nixon down for an hour with Trigger and just <laughs> call him Dave. You're right, Dave. Did you rob Watergate, Dave? The last time. <laughs> it's not Dave. <laughs> it's Tricky Dicky. <laughs> <laughs> Right, My knowledge of Richard Nixon stems solely from Futurama and the film Frost Nixon. Uh, cool. Which is by Ron Howard, who also directed Apollo 13. Oh, full circle. Magic. <laughs> we got a crowbar in the moon somehow. <laughs> well, just did. I was also going to say Ron Howard was in Happy Days. He was. Which has nothing to do with the moon. <laughs> There's days on the moon. There we go. There we, there we go. And no wonder they're Happy Days. Um, <laughs> Although it's like Sunday, Monday, we've frozen to death. <laughs> We're not getting to Saturday. <laughs> Do you know how long days are on the moon? This is just the Fonz lying frozen on a motorbike on the moon. He tried to jump the shark and yeah. it just launched itself into <laughs> space. These are not happy days. <laughs> 
Uh, so yes, the moon of the month was the beaver moon. The full beaver moon. And like we said, there's absolutely nothing funny about that. So I'm recording this right at the end when I discovered halfway through recording this podcast that my microphone was on the floor. So my audio is going to sound pretty terrible for a portion of this, and I'm very sorry for that. We didn't have time to re-record it, so please accept my tinny audio for a couple of minutes. Thank you for your patience. You're all very wonderful. Very local moon news now. Yes, very local moon news indeed, which is usually... Uh, Terrestrial new moon news. We should call it that. That makes more sense. I like very local Oh, moon okay, news. very moon. Terrestrial slash very local moon news then. So in true fluff piece style... I went and looked at the local moon news for the towns called Moon in America, and I found an honest-to-God fluff news piece from Moon Township, Pennsylvania, where firefighters rescued ten dogs from a burning home. Oh, that's good. Well done, then. Well done, then. Well, it was actually also the neighbours that helped out as well. That's good. Because I watched a news report about it as well. Where were the uh, owners? Outside with petrol. We thought it was a watering can. <laughs> the I don't know where the owners were, but apparently they were out, but the neighbours knew that they had dogs in the house and they could see this fire, so they called the fire brigade, kicked down the doors, managed to get some of the dogs out, the firefighters got the rest of the dogs out, and they were all taken to the vet, and they are all doing okay. Marvellous. Do the owners know? The owners do know. Right, okay. <laughs> they, they, they haven't, like, fled the country. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the two adults who live in the home are being helped by the Red Cross. It seems that everyone is being taken care of, the dogs and the homeowners as well. Uh, they mm. suspect that it was a space heater that caused this. Uh, what's a space heater? Oh, just one of those like temporary, like just one of those plug-in heaters that you like put under the desk to keep you warm, for example. Well, yeah, I think like I've a, got some of them. Like a temporary radiator. They're called, like, I've, I've heard oh, yeah, called yeah. space heaters before. Yeah, I can't remember what we call them. Fire hazard things. <laughs> what now? The insurance scam nuggets. Yeah, our ones just live in the shed. Oh no, yeah, that was it. We put them up in the loft for like the summer and then we've never gotten down. We just sit and freeze. <laughs> we should get the radiators down, no. It's too costly. It's too just cold, yeah. Tell you what, that coat will do a nice job. Put yeah, that, that one instead. So yeah, I found an honest to God fluff story in Moon. As this is a proper fluff piece for local news, do you want to? Sign it off like a local news reporter. Uh, Yeah, all right. Well, that was 10 dogs rescued from a fire. Just goes to prove that you can always find a hot dog if you want one. (laughs) (laughs) This is why I don't work on local news. And so, the recurring feature returns. Everything wrong with Moonraker. So we're going to look from 8.50 onwards, and this is the scene where Bond enters Q's office and basically has the briefing and the plot explained to him for the what he's going to be doing for the rest of the film. Yes, and so uh, if you've not heard this before, we just go with stuff that's scientifically wrong, uh, not necessarily s- cinematically wrong. Yeah, the scene's only two minutes, so there's not <laughs> going to be a lot going wrong. And even if there is, we're not going to be pointing out that, oh, that lampshade was on this angle, and then if you look from here, it's clearly tilted or a different colour. We're not going to although, although we, we did manage to spot, like, every... I spotted a few things and said, oh, this is wrong, and then you've added a few more to the list. And then we just re-watched it again, just to remind ourselves, and I've added a few more things. The, the <laughs> first thing I've, I've added is 
like the scene opens with M, the head of MI6, the Minister of Defence and Q just sort of wandering around a room. They're just waiting for Bond to yeah. turn up. I very much doubt this would happen in real life. Uh, if the minister was turning up, yeah. you, you would be in the room first. In fact, if you were brief, briefing an agent, the minister need not be there. The minister would give guidance to the civil servants and the civil servants would be able to sort of work it out because the minister doesn't really give much advice saying, well, this is very important. Yeah. And, th and that's it. So. Exactly. Two lines he has in the scene from Bond entering and Bond leaving. He has two lines. You could assume that he is briefed M before Bond has arrived, so M is just like they're just kind of distilling it for him. He could do, but yeah, the, the thing is though, broadly it would be the civil servants briefing the Minister of Defence, yeah. saying this is what's going on, this is what we know, this is what's happened. It wouldn't be the Minister, the minister of Defence presumably would say, yeah, this is important, but there would be a briefing going on as opposed to, uh, Minister, do you, should we just sit around in, in <laughs> silence whilst one of our agents turns up? Uh, he'll be here in a minute, you know. The main character will be along any minute now. Yeah. I think M was actually reading a newspaper or looking at some papers. So it's like, yeah, Minister, just, just sit yourself there for a bit. We'll, uh... Minister of Defence got nothing going on in the 70s. <laughs> That was it. It's just like... Notoriously peaceful time. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not the head of the civil service or, uh, you know, head of a department by any means, but I very much doubt if a minister turned up to your department <laughs> and you said, well, we've got this meeting with a member of staff. Um, can, can you just wait there, minister? They'll be along in a minute. I doubt you'd get away with that. You, you would probably have other things to talk about as well, like budgets or anything, like what is going on in your department. It's you like, wouldn't just be sat there inside. Yeah. Oh, we only do one thing in this department and we've, we've just got to wait for the guy to turn up. Uh, so before we carry on with this deep dive, let's just quickly recap what M and the minister actually say to Bond. Yeah, go on then. In a nutshell, they basically say, oh, Moonraker's gone missing. You've read about it in the newspaper, but we suspect it's been hijacked in midair. We think Drax is behind it. He's in California. You should go out there. Well, that's it. They don't even say he's in California. They... Oh, Bond. Bond goes. says, oh, I happen to know the manufacturer of this is, is the Drax Corporation in California. So he's told to investigate it, and he says, right, I'll, I'll go and go to California and the Drax Corporation. Yeah. And that's literally it. It's like, oh, that's good enough. That's, you know, it's yeah. like if someone said, well, go and investigate 9-11. It's like, well, the planes were made by Boeing. I'll head off to Boeing. Right. You, I'm off you, to Carcassonne. Bye. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just like, what? Hang on. Uh, <laughs> so one, it's a very loose brief. Uh, as to what to do. And also their evidence is a little lifty. They say, oh, we found wreckage of the 747 that was carrying the plane in the Yukon, but yeah. there was no trace of the shuttle on it. Yeah, so we saw in scene one the shuttle launch, much to our... Skepticism. Skepticism. Uh, so the Yukon is in Canada, and looking at NASA locations in the US. Yeah. So it's come from NASA to the UK and it's got to fly over the Yukon. Okay, I kind of, so is that possible if there's a direct route and it kind of is if possibly there's a NASA thing in Alaska? There might be. There, um, might. there might be a military base in Alaska. That, in fact, there definitely will be a military base in Alaska, but moving a shuttle up there, slapping it on a plane and then taking it across the Yukon is a waste of fuel, a waste of time when you could 
just go from Cape Canaveral in Florida or <laughs> California on the equator and nice and easy to get to the UK from, not across treacherous mountain ranges. Yeah, so that, that notice that was a bit odd. But they found out pretty quickly that it crashed in the Yukon, which is, okay, fine. Oh, and they've got... I do have something to add about that yeah. footage that I found yeah. a little... Like, you might be able to fill me in on this. Yeah. On the screen, it flashes up most secret. Yes. Shouldn't that be just top secret? Uh, yes, it should be. Because um, most secret just sounds like, oh, this is really important, but is it is it like top secret? Yeah. Is there's... it like very important secret? Like, don't tell anyone? Like, it's most secret, Tarquin. Yeah, well, that, that most secret was a legitimate protective marking. Right, okay. It was, I stand corrected. According to Wikipedia, which is right, it um, stopped in 1942. Then why is it in this 70s? Well, well, that's it. So uh, part of me, because I deal with security a bit in, in government, wouldn't be surprised if like someone sort of said, well, we've, we've hard-coded it in, so it says most secret, and we, we it'll cost us to go back to the supplier and change it. Right. However, it's unlikely they built this video system in before 1942. Um, <laughs> let's be honest. So it was called most secret before 1942, but they changed it to align with the Allies during the war because uh, everyone else kind of used top secret. Uh, and just for those people that like protective markings, you can go to Wikipedia and see everyone's equivalent protective marking. And it's quite, I don't know, I find it funny slash stereotypical where you've got like, say, Britain, America, Canada saying top secret, and then you've got another nation going top secretio, <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, or secretio speciali or something like that. It's, it, it's like the fast show has <laughs> done protective markings. There it is at this. Yeah. Germany has many, many different... Yeah. They, they've deviated massively. And they are all in capitals, so just imagine a German shouting at you, <laughs> Geheim! For secret. Or in Ecuador, secreto. Yeah, that's it. It's just secret with an O on the end. So, it's, oh, there, there That's also go. their language. Yeah, yeah, I'm an alto secret. As someone in the know, it just made it humorous. Yeah, it's, it is amusing, because I keep thinking of the fast show going Scotchio and stuff like that. When we were learning Welsh in uh, high school, because born right on the border between England and Wales, everyone spoke English, but because it was a Welsh school, everybody had to learn Welsh. So we came up with Welsh 2, which was just <laughs> ER at the end of everything. So it was, hello EO, I am speaking EO, Welsh EO, to EO, to you EO. <laughs> Probably catch on, I think. Uh, so, like how's, so. how's your Welsh now? Abysmal. Like, I, I know the odd phrase and I can sort of pronounce long words, like the big long train name. Can you say, there is a laptop computer on my table? No, but I do know the Welsh word for computer is cofriadi. Cofriadi? Yeah. Why? I don't know. Most of the time, like, the Welsh word for radio is radio. Yeah. So, um, so did the Welsh invent a computer? Like, no. No. Uh, do you know what the Welsh word for ironing board is? No. Board smoothier. Is, it, <laughs> is that a genuine one? It's not like the microwave is poppity ping. That's is a, a colloquialism right. from ping oven, but it is adopted and it just kind of spiralled out of control. But board smoothier is a legit thing. Board smoothier. But I mean, yeah. I, yeah. Back to everything wrong with Moonraker. So that was something that was not wrong. Most secret is a classification. However, it was the wrong period for when it was shown in the film. Yeah, so it should have been top secret. 
which I didn't know. I just thought most secrets seemed a bit weird. Oh, it's very old school. Yeah. It's most secret. You have an issue with the pointer that Q is using. What? What's with the pointer? Like, people have the extending pointer things. Like, they, they use for, like, lecturers and professors. Yes. They'll have it in their pocket and use the point at the board. So to describe what happens in the scene is there's a, a sort of picture and Q pulls out, like, a, a radio antenna, like, from a walkie-talkie type yeah. pointer and then taps the picture and it suddenly opens up. So I'm not worried about the, the pointer. That's entirely fine. But it's yeah. at what point did some engineer... <laughs> Okay. have to make some sort of button or trigger on the frame of the picture so that it opens up into a projector. So uh, my my sort of scientific slash engineering nitpick of this is the use case, because I work in engineering and everything's about use cases and yeah. why do you want that? And if there's anything that has no business benefit, it's just like, that's going. You're not, you're not getting paid for that. So if I went to the civil service and someone said, well, can I have money to have a picture that when I hit at the bottom right-hand corner with a stick, it then suddenly opens up into a projector. Okay, I see your point now. People would sort of say, well, can't you just have a button? Even, even, let's just suppose you needed a picture that turned into a video screen. Yeah. Can you not just look behind and have a button? Or, because you're only operating it from two feet away, if you want something <laughs> remotely, we could do an infrared remote thing, so. If you're two feet away, <laughs> use your arm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I just couldn't get my head around the use case of why, why have they, yeah, why have they got this thing that's only triggerable from two feet away, and yet a button just reaching behind the picture wouldn't do? It's because it's a spy film and it looks cool. Well, yeah, I mean, seeing what happens in the rest of the film, that's entirely correct. But <laughs> like, there's some bonkers stuff that what the hell is the use case for that? But we'll come on to that oh. later in the film. Oh, um, even later on in this point, uh, with the armour-piercing darts that are given to Bond. Yeah, the, the the wrist gun thing. Yeah. So, yeah, the first thing is given this sort of wrist gun that is standard issue to all agents, and it's quite hefty. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's, I'm looking at a pint glass now. It's probably about that size or so. Um, like, I'd say it's... The size of a smartphone in terms yeah. of like um, length and width and height. Stealth. Sponge. That's yeah. what it's the size of. It's the size <laughs> of a sponge. Sponges could be any size, but okay, yeah, that one, one over there. The little, one of the little yellow and green scour sponge. <laughs> that slapped on a phone, slapped on your wrist. Not discreet. Yeah, it's not one of the sort of dart pens or something you could sneak away. And yeah. it's, it's not disguised as anything else. It's just like, here's a gun. And you have to assume that your agents are wearing suits all the time because they have the, like, foldy down, like, wizard kind of, like, sleeves. <laughs> so it will allow the dart. Whereas in the 70s, everything was, like, skin-tight polo neck kind of thing. So what? Have you got a tumour on your yeah. on your wrist, Mr. Bond? And then he goes to fire it, but because it's clinging to him, the dart's just going to go... Pfft. Just get stuck in the actual turtleneck sweater. <laughs> That's it. Well, yeah, also, if he wants to go to a beach or oh, something. Oh, no. Oh, dear. When did that come off? I don't know. Oh, no. Apologies for the tinny audio before this. I just discovered that my microphone fell off or was on the floor before we even started recording because I'm an idiot. Okay, cool. So we rejoin. With good audio from this Good audio, on. hopefully. And, uh, yeah, so Q hands over this gun and says this is activated by nerve impulses from the wrist muscles. And Bond goes, oh, like this, flicks his wrist back and fires a dart. 
Now, just a few things on that. If someone said to me, this is activated by nerve impulses from the wrist muscles, that could be anything. Yes. I, I, I mean, any nerve impulse from the wrist muscles, you know, I could move the wrist down, left, right. It's not just, oh, you flick it back. Your nerves also relay pain, irritation, temperature. So, <laughs> shall we put the air con, Mr. Bond? Yeah, sure. Boom. Yeah, that, that's it. So... The idea that he suddenly knows this is how you fire it. Also, just military part of me says you don't just hand over a weapon, one that's loaded yeah. to someone, uh, and train them in it at the same time. You have a, a training course, and the first thing you do is sort of teach, right, we're going to put all live ammunition nowhere near the classroom. We are going to uh, do no NSPs, normal safety precautions. Of this is If you find the weapon, this is what you do with it. This is how you load and unload it. And these are the characteristics of this is what its range is. And this is how dangerous it is and all that. You don't just hand someone a loaded weapon and expect them to know what to do with it. Especially when there's a flipping minister in the room. You yeah. don't, you, and, and you don't do it in an office. You do it in a classroom. Or if there's live rounds, you do it on a range. Yeah, and not only that, he fires it, and then straight after that, Q then goes, okay, five blue-tipped armor-piercing darts, five red-tipped cyanide-coated, causing death in seconds. Armor-piercing darts, those are like semi-explosive, right? I looked into this. Carry on with your trait. In the film, they are. But the point is, he doesn't know if they're explosive. He doesn't know what they are. It's just like, oh, the darts, boom, yes. fires it straight away. What if they explode? Yeah, that's it. In, the, in this film, the armour piercing is explosive. One in two chance that he just happened to look out that it was the cyanide one. And it's the good job that Money Penny didn't walk in halfway through like, here's the tea minister. Boom. That's it. So yeah, I did have a look at armour piercing because I was like, well, armour piercing, it, it works slightly differently for bullets and tanks because how you do an armour piercing on a tank is, is, is very clever. Um, and uh, there's lots of uh, sort of countermeasures and counter countermeasures yeah. and stuff. But broadly on a bullet, you just have a very, to armor pierce, you have a very strong sort of tungsten slug inside the bullet. So it's not necessarily explosive. Uh, whereas on a tank to uh, pierce, you do do shaped heads and use explosives, but on a small bullet, you just do a very, very heavy bit of metal that you put as much momentum in as you can and, and, and send it through yeah. the armour. Uh, but this is more body armour rather than uh, tank armour uh, you're trying to get with a bullet. Which is fine, you know, good, good weapon, okay, good. Then you've got poison darts, so cyanide. And I'm thinking, well, why, why would you do that? Because if I'm shooting someone and I, okay, the idea is I poison them in 30 seconds, presumably I want them dead, okay, yeah. that, that's, my, that's my use case, I want my target dead, fine. Um, why don't I just use armor piercing? Because yeah. that will kill, <laughs> you know. And I've, if I've got 30 seconds and I've shot them, armor piercing will do enough damage, exactly. surely, as well. Um, and what situation are you going to be in where you have the armor piercing or just the wristy dart gun, but not your actual gun? Because <laughs> going through a metal detector, will it'll detect the wrist gun as well as the actual gun so both will get taken off you i can't think of a single situation in which well, well obviously the film ah, comes in some convoluted yeah. bonkers way of Sensing. shoehorning it in yeah, thanks so. to psychic q yeah that's it um it's one of those i can't remember what the trope is the film trope where they happen 
Oh, Eddie Izzard does a wonderful bit. Just like, Q is psychic. Yeah, the sort of trope in, in, in the films, like, here is a thing that you will just happen to need. Yeah. One uh, of the things so, that does yeah. bother me about the wrist gun is that you need to reload it every time you fire the dart. And the darts come in a separate little pocket case that you have to keep on you at all time. If only you had, say, like, the dart stored, dart or bullets stored in the handle of the vessel you're using to fire them. Like a gun. Yeah, that's it. You're, you're taking around... Uh, if, you, if you've ever come across, like, a Derringer gun, which is quite a small gun, I mean, it's, it's... Oh, yeah. They're pellets, basically. Yeah. You could modify that in a similar way, make it as big as you want. But this, yeah, so this is a very weird sort of engineering wise. It's like that's, even if it worked, its use case is very weird of when you could and couldn't use it. Its use case is virtually non existent unless you're in a centrifuge powered by a madman. What's this you've written about? Uh, Q gives him a discerning look. Yeah. Q gives Bond the dark gun. He then, as you pointed out, shouldn't have done this, but he just fires it straight away. He now knows how to use it. Q then goes, here is the other stuff, off you go. Bond has his brief, he has his equipment, leaves the room, and Q shakes his head like, oh, this Bond, what is he like? He's just doing his job. You've given him a brief, you've shown him what he needs, given him the equipment, he has tested it to make sure it worked, and now he's off on the mission. Why are you shaking your head? You gave him the darts in these conditions. He might be just shaking his head at, like, the state of MI6. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. We're using live rounds during testing. We've got a minister in the room who's just sat silently watching all this. <laughs> yeah, we're just exposing unprofessionalism to our paymaster. So maybe he's, maybe it's actually a very valid reaction just not to bond. Oh, just to like, how did my life come to this? Yeah. <laughs> I've just opened a picture with a stick. Yes, I guess. It's just something that kind of stuck out to me. It's like, but you gave him the dart gun. You've told him what to do. Why are you shaking your head at him? After seeing this scene, why do they need to find the shuttle? Yeah, um, well, because they've lost it. Yeah, but why is it important that they find it? Yeah, I mean, it does presuppose it's still around yeah. and that it's not just detached itself and flown off to a different location of the Yukon slightly and just they haven't found the crash site yet. Yeah. Why do they need to find it? Because uh, it's the plot. Okay. <laughs> well, you would be if you lost a shuttle. Um, but the other, the other thing is that you can track stuff in space. So oh, yeah, absolutely. Tracked. If you saw a shuttle launching, not everywhere's covered by radar, but if you saw a, a shuttle launching, you could track that and you would see it because it's like you can track small bits of debris kicking about. I think you could track down to five centimetres. Yeah, I don't know what the technology was like back then. Well, you have a uh, register and everything over five centimetres in space has to be registered uh, so you can track it. Is this everything outside of like, a space station? Or everything at low everything. Earth orbit. Yeah. So everything that and above you need to track to be able to make sure that it doesn't collide with the space station because this has happened before and it has put like a huge dent in it and it can cause catastrophic events if there is a collision because these things are whizzing around like 60,000 kilometers an hour. They're like ridiculously fast. This is actually exemplified perfectly, not in that stupid film Gravity, but in Thunderbirds, which did it in the 60s. It was a brilliant episode called Ricochet and it's about a pirate radio station but the 
radio station is on a pirate satellite <laughs> cool. orbiting the Earth. So they're like, they're like, oh, this is our pirate radio station. And they have these two guys <laughs> on the actual thing. But because it's a pirate ship and it's not registered, it's just like going around the Earth untracked. It's so, not on the register. Are they, sorry, are they literally on the satellite or in the satellite? Two, two people are on the satellite. <laughs> That's epic. Yeah. So, that you, so you have... <laughs> have, they gonna, have they, like, built a satellite yeah. and it's like, yeah, and we're going to go up in it. No, seriously, we, we've got enough technology just to set up a rebro station. No, 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 we're going in it. Yep. Right. So they go in it. An unmanned scientific payload rocket is launched and because that's on the registered, because it's a registered thing going into space, they're like, oh, we've checked the path, there's nothing coming, but lo and behold, what goes into the path, oh, it's the pirate radio station with people on it. So it collides with it, scientific payload is destroyed, that throws the ricochet pirate radio station off orbit to the point where its orbit is decaying and it's gonna actually re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and could end up in the ocean. No, it's going to collide with a huge oil refinery in the Saudi desert. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, International Rescue have to go and save him. Oh, cool. And it is a brilliant episode. Cool. I do want to see that pirate radio station. Because I'm guessing that. Is, is it like a 1960s look at these hippies? No, actually. Like they're, they're, they're not hippies. They're kind of just like high-flying radio DJs just like, hey, look at me, I'm Rick O'Shea. Well, to, to be fair, like, if two DJs built a satellite <laughs> that they could live in and do, like, radio okay. show, like, they can have that, you know, whatever frequency they're using, they can have it, like, genuinely, they've done really well. Because it, it's not a case of, like, you're living up there. One, that's hard enough, but you've got to have a whole ground support system as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, the amount of work that they've done just to, just to get their broadcast out. I mean, had they not heard of, like, HF? <laughs> like, genuinely using HF frequencies, you can broadcast around the world, you know. I think Thunderbirds is set in the year 2168 as well. Is it? Oh, right. So, so it's a bit redundant so, at this point. So this is like the equivalent of a podcast. Like, we can broadcast to the world by just recording our voices and uploading it. Whereas in 2160, it's like going to be normal for people just to build their own satellite and orbit the Earth for a bit. Yeah, exactly. Right. The, the Joe Rogan satellite podcast. Yeah. Lest you just do it from a studio. It was written in 1968 or 69, though. So. I, don't, I don't care. Gravity works the same way. Like, <laughs> and the rules of physics work the same way. Like, genuinely, there is no... Once again, engineering use case. There's no reason why I want to do a radio show or a podcast or whatever on a satellite with gravity throwing stuff all over the place. Or lack of gravity, sorry. Whereas actually you can do it like relatively easy on Earth for a lot less cost. You know, that's not that's not new scientific knowledge we've discovered in the last 40 years. It is also a kid's show. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> that, that, I, I, don't, I don't care how feasible it is. I do not want to live in a pineapple under the sea. No. <laughs> well, no, SpongeBob is fine. SpongeBob doesn't... Oh, yeah. yeah. Scientifically sound is SpongeBob. Well, he's a sponge. <laughs> Once you've got a sponge, all bets are off, but... In Thunderbirds, they're using rockets and science and stuff, and so it's like, right, okay, you, you do it well or you don't do it at all. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> That's why we've got such bad scientists, because they've been raised on bad uh, science. Ow! <laughs> that hurt. The other thing about Thunderbird... Oh. 
Who's the? Well, there was one of them who was in space what, all the time. Thunderbird yeah. Five. He was just stuck in space. Well, it was piloted by John, John Tracy, and they did have shifts, so they took it in turns up in Thunderbird Five. Oh right. And there was a couple of episodes where they swapped, like they had the transition, and I think. While they were doing the transition, they had a radio broadcast coming through or something like that. So they missed it the first time around to add extra jeopardy to the episode. So they did show like the ins and outs of John wasn't stuck up in space because he was the most hated child. Right. Yeah. Well, that was it. Because as I remember Thunderbirds, like you had Thunderbird 2 that was just used up for everything. Because it's the coolest. Well, that that was it because it had a pod. It was a green one that had a pod with stuff in. And it's like, oh, we need stuff. Well, best send Thunderbird 2. Thunderbird 1 was a generic rocket thing that could hoist people or something. And Thunder, well, Thunderbird 3 was a rocket that they kind of needed in space stuff. And then Thunderbird 4 was the submarine that they occasionally needed if they happen to be underwater but like if they're above ground then it's like Thunderbird 4 you can just yeah chill you're not needed they did have episodes where Gordon the pilot of Thunderbird 4 looked pretty dejected yeah but he went along on the bigger missions yeah that, that was it I remember thinking that like this the frequency analysis of like we, these Thunderbirds were not used in equal measure, which sort of annoyed me as a child. And like Thunderbird 5 was never used. It was used every episode what? because you need to get the rescue transmissions received by something. Just use HF. Well, <laughs> oh God. The rule was you broadcast something on any frequency and Thunderbird 5 will pick it up. That was the rule. Broadcast it on any frequency. Right. That doesn't work. Okay, well... <laughs> Because if you've got a line of sight frequency, it can't go through the... Thunderbird 5 has got to be seeing a line of sight to the transmitter. And also, why is there only one? Because like, if it's not above your hemisphere, yeah. you're screwed. Unlucky. By international rescue, they should be called like hemisphere rescue. <laughs> and the other thing is, okay, so you've spent money on this satellite system. Why not build a few satellites? So like, you've got a constellation of them, not just one. And... And also, you don't need to send someone living in it. All it's got to do is rebroadcast from every magical frequency down to one standardised frequency. Well, this came out ten years after Sputnik came... Like, this was written ten years after Sputnik was in the sky. They knew the rules of physics. They had engineers. They could have asked, you don't need to send someone up into space just to monitor half the Earth badly. Right, I was going to tell you the Thunderbirds battle plan now, what the actual reason for Thunderbird 1 or 2 is. But I'm not going to now, because you're just going to pick it apart. No, 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 I don't... I don't want you to tread on my dreams anymore. Thunderbird 2 is the transporter one. <sighs> right, okay. You've coaxed me back in. Yeah. Thunderbird 1's like a police car. First on the scene, goes in, assesses the situation, ground control, right, we need this, this, and this. Thunderbird 2 is like the fire engine. Comes in with all the big equipment. Being like, right, here's what we have. So Thunderbird 1 is a speedy rocket that gets on the scene first, establishes what is needed, calls back. Thunderbird 2 comes out with... Thunderbird 4 in, or uh, the Mole, or... That was it. The Mole, yeah. which is a legitimate vehicle. Yeah. Why is it not a Thunderbird? Uh, Can't you call it Thunderbird 6? Because it doesn't fly. Neither does the submarine. It flies under the ocean. Stingray flew under the ocean. There was a whole song about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the song doesn't... Stingray, Stingray. Uh, oh, the extended version does. It flies under the sea. Yeah, I turned that off as well. It was a bit naff. But uh, yeah, I mean, that legitimately could have been Thunder Vehicle 6, <laughs> you know. But carry on. 
Um, Thunderbird 3 was for space-based um, rescues, which were used quite often. Were they? Yeah, there was one called the Sun Probe where they were... Talk about a, a redundant use case for a mission. They were sending scientists to the sun to take a bit of the plasma from the sun because it would orbit it and come back around in this like high technology rocket that could survive the sun's intense uh, heat. But on the way, it kind of broke down and melted a bit because it was too close to the sun. And then it was just on a collision course for the sun. So this rocket was just going to plow straight into it. So they had to send out Thunderbird 3 to yeah. go and catch them. And there are a few other space ones as well. Like that was less used as I remember. There's, there's a lot of oil workers. Engineers yeah. getting crushed and stuff. Well, yeah, it's dangerous. <laughs> it is, yeah. No, I'll agree. They need rescuing. Yeah, I'll agree. But they sponsor by like the oil industry or engineering or. I think the reason why is because they had the same set. Well, you say this, they destroyed the set almost every single time by blowing it up. But it's easy to make a power plant. Like models of pylons look amazing when you put explosives beneath them, mm. and it gives you an excuse for huge explosions. And Tying this all together and putting a nice big bow on this, the special effects worker for Thunderbirds was Derek Meddings, who then went on to do the special effects for James Bond, including Moonraker. Hey. Boom! <laughs> End it there. UB40 still in there. Are they still going? Sure, you like they were on bonus now for throwback. Oh, right, I was gonna say that's like <laughs> flipping out. They were on like now, like my older brother had them on like that. Now that's what I call music two or something. 